Thank you to Contentful for supporting our podcast. I'm Marcelo Lewin, and this is the Headless Creator Podcast, episode 28. So let's get to it. Welcome to episode 28 of the Headless Creator Podcast, where I have conversations with content architects, designers, web developers, creators, and other professionals who are using a headless CMS and other related headless technologies for omni-channel content delivery. I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin, a senior content solutions architect focused on content modeling, content architecting, and headless CMS implementations. Today, we continue our conversation all about advanced CSS with my guest, Mark Riba, a senior developer at Smartbug Media. But before we get started, if you want more podcast episodes, tutorials, webinars, and blog articles, all focused on creating websites, web apps, and IoT apps using headless technologies, please visit www.headlesscreator.com. All right, Mark, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, happy to be here. I'm glad to have you back. In our last episode, we spoke a lot about CSS, more from an introductory level. Today, we're going to continue with a bunch of questions from the community that are really getting into the meat of CSS, a lot more detail. If you're ready, we can just jump in and get going. I am so ready. We'll start a little bit on the basic side. How does CSS work with JavaScript? It can work a lot of ways. So again, it really, this is kind of where we get into the nitty gritty about performance and kind of what is best practice. So a lot of what you would see in kind of older style websites and, and web apps would be declaring styles directly via JavaScript. So as we mentioned last week, you can have those inline styles where style is relative to an individual element declared on the page. You can do that in JavaScript as well. So especially if listeners are familiar with jQuery, which was kind of the API of front-end development for a long time, you could you know, target an element, so select it using jQuery and then use a style function on that or via jQuery to assign a style. Let's say you wanted to, after a, a user clicked on a button, change the background of the button. You could do that by saying JavaScript on click, essentially change button background to whatever the value is. And you can definitely do that. And sometimes that is a good use case. What I prefer to do usually, because it's more performant, again, depending on the use case, is use JavaScript to toggle the CSS classes. So as we talked about last week, you can declare a shared class for multiple elements that share different style rules. And by using JavaScript to toggle your class, that means that all of your styles are essentially already preloaded into the browser. So once that class changes, your animation is just going to be that little bit more smooth or the transition, depending on what you have applied there. That's kind of the basic way that CSS and JS can intermingle. But increasingly, especially looking at frameworks like Vue and React, where they are kind of full-on web application frameworks and you're dealing more with components and your code, not only your markup and your styles, but also your logic all being bundled at a component or a single file level. What you're seeing more and more often is this kind of concept of CSS in JS or styled components. And essentially what those do, there are some advantages to them again, but really what those are doing at the end of the day is creating either inline or embedded styles at a component level. In a lot of cases, that is what you want. If you want styles to only show up whenever those components are being used, 
which in general is a best practice, as we talked about last week. Ultimately, you want to get your styles into the browser as quickly as possible to prevent blocking any other content from rendering and also making sure that once the content does render, the styles are already there. However, the disadvantage or kind of the opportunity for those developers who do really lean on CSS and JS or these other kind of frameworks that allow you to bundle your styles with the actual markup is that you're missing out on the caching and a lot of the advantages that browsers have been developed to include, again, mainly in caching, but also just CSS is kind of de facto going to run extremely well in a browser. And so using JS, especially in cases like animation and transition, so continuously adding or changing a value to, let's say, a CSS transform property. It's something that you see fairly often, but if you're really trying to get into the nitty gritty, I have a little bit of a video background as well. So if you're talking about frames per second and like Hertz and really making sure that your animations are as smooth as possible, most of the time that is going to be done using CSS for basic things. There are things like I believe it's called D3 or where you're doing kind of 3D animation in JavaScript. And that's a kind of a whole different ballgame. If you're just talking about simple hover animations or kind of animating content as it loads in, I think that using an actual CSS style sheet to, again, declare those rules early and keep those rules in cache is an opportunity that a lot of developers should consider. Does CSS support variables and conditional statements at all? Or do you use JavaScript for that? Sometimes it does. <laughs> so if you're using a later spec or if you're only really supporting kind of the latest browsers, the latest versions of Chrome, Firefox, and Safari. There are actually CSS variables. That's one of the modules that W3C is talking about developing for the next version of the spec. Essentially, what you're doing there is you're declaring your module or your variables at different levels of your document. So most likely you're seeing root. And what you can do is assign, you see it most often for colors. So declaring one certain brand color and one accent color, one text color, etc. You can declare those in CSS. However, the support is not universal, as I alluded to earlier. So what a lot of people will do is they will either use a CSS preprocessor, so something like SAS or SCSS or less, which are essentially kind of different versions of CSS that are then compiled, so preprocessed. You process them into normal CSS, and then they will take those variables and kind of hard code them into the CSS where they should be. Does that mean that you have to compile before you're able to see the outcome of that? Yes and no. So you can use a tool like Browserify or Browser Sync, which essentially gives you a hot reloaded version or preview. And there are some tools that allow basically real-time SCSS or SAS or less compilation. But Again, whenever you're using the browser console to debug or really look at the values that are being output, that's all in standard CSS. And unless you're on a really modern browser, you're probably not going to see the variable like names in there. It will be a hard-coded value at that point. Right. Okay, that makes sense. And since you did mention preprocessor, another question from the community is, what are CSS postprocessors? Essentially, the idea of a preprocessor, right, is you're feeding in a file of a certain kind and then outputting it as a CSS file. What postprocessors do is they look at actually a CSS file that's fed to it and then can apply various rules. So it essentially reads that CSS file and you can compare it to different files as well. And it'll modify the content of that CSS file and output it somewhere else. So post-CSS is the most common tool for this. And there are some really powerful use cases for post-CSS that aren't available in a preprocessor. So things like automatically converting every pixel size in an element. So let's say that your base font size is 16px. 
you can run a post CSS plugin that would convert those pixel values into a different value like RAM or CH or some of these other kind of more newer values that have certain advantages over others. So using a post processor allows you to do things like that. And it also really helps for code organization. So something that I do a lot is I do try to develop in a more kind of containerized way. So I'll develop my CSS along with my HTML and my JS at kind of a section level of a web page. And what I like to do then is declare all of my different responsive declarations at the modular level as well. The issue that you then run into if you're just using that CSS on a page directly is you now have like 10, 15, 20 different app media iPad, essentially, declarations. And it's much more efficient for a browser if you can bundle all of those into a single media block statement. And so PostCSS allows me to write those declarations in multiple places and then bundle them all in the appropriate place at the end that builds time. I see, because the rendered CSS would have 10 ad media and the post would take all those and centralize them into one, basically. Exactly, yes. I see. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So normally, do you use preprocessors and postprocessors or do you just straight on CSS? without them? I use them whenever I can. I mainly use SCSS. And the reason isn't necessarily even because of optimizations in terms of being able to write less code and output more. That's definitely there. But really, it comes down to a code organization standpoint for me, especially when it comes to naming conventions, which is something else that I think is very important when you start getting into more advanced CSS design. So I'm a pretty faithful proponent of BEM, which stands for Block, Element, and Modifier. And essentially, that's a way for you to structure your CSS class names. So they're a little bit more logical. And using something like SCSS allows you to actually write those kind of declarations, again, the more logical way and also a more concise way. So essentially what you can do is declare a certain section. Let's say you have a section where you want to show three cards all in a row on desktop and stacked on top of each other in mobile. You can declare your parent wrapper as dot cards container or just dot cards as the, the overall section. And then in SCSS, you're able to kind of inherit those parent and child relationships as well as the class name. So by essentially keeping your rule open for that dot cards element, you can then write the and symbol underscore underscore container, meaning the container is like an element within that block and write all of your rules directly in there and also have access to your app medias at the individual element level. And it helps keep your CSS concise and also logical, just knowing which rules are parents of which. And it also helps in terms of hierarchy. So a CSS rule that has, let's say, three selectors on it. So dot body, dot block, dot element is going to be more specific and therefore take precedence over something that's just dot block, dot element. So having a little bit more organization on that end is definitely a big reason for leaning on preprocessors. Makes a lot of sense. Everybody talks about the CSS box model. Can you explain exactly what that is? Sure. So blocks are essentially kind of the, the building, no pun intended, but they are the building blocks of layouts on the web. So you can essentially think of most elements with a few exceptions as being box model or blocks style elements. And what that means is they are essentially at the end of the day, some kind of rectangle that you then are able to manipulate with certain properties. So it goes margin on the outside for any exterior white space. So white space outside of the block. So you can say that this block should have at minimum, I would probably say two rem is probably my most common one. So that means two times the base font size of the document. There should be white space around this element. 
And then you have a border. So typically that's going to be used for an actual border, but it, you can also use it for white space in certain cases as well. And then padding is going to be white space within the box. So if you think of it almost like a sandwich, it goes margin, border, and then padding. These are all ways for you to manage the white space around each one of your elements and also manage the width and the height and a lot of different properties around these individual boxes. And even though you don't actually see you know, the outline on every box, it just kind of helps you as you think about these elements on a document, really kind of how they should be arranged and ultimately how you can apply your, your different style rules to each one of these elements. Now, you mentioned REM, which brings me to units. And how are units handled in CSS? Because there's many ways of handling it. Is there one way that is better than another? So I would say the foundation for a lot of web design, what a lot of people are used to is kind of using pixels for everything. And that's certainly something that you can do. A pixel is going to be a pixel for the most part outside of uh, sometimes with retina displays and images. You can certainly use a, a pixel for just about everything. However, Again, especially as CSS matured and responsive design became a, a core component of CSS and declaring these rules, we also got introduced to a lot of kind of more responsive friendly and more logical, I would say, units. So obviously a pixel is going to be a pixel on the screen. It's kind of a, a set unit almost by physics, really. But then you have different things like EM and REM, which build on, again, as I alluded to earlier, they're based off of font size. So Specifically for me, I usually use those around margin and padding around text elements. So let's say a certain header should be 40 pixels on mobile and 62 pixels on desktop. What you can do is you can declare your white space or your margin. So let's say you want a certain amount of margin on top of that header. You can declare that in an EM unit and the actual pixel size of that white space is going to change in proportion to the font size of that element. So what I'll usually do is do like 0.2 EM of white space on top of a header, maybe 0.4 on the bottom. And then for paragraphs or different things, I'll set a margin bottom of like 1.2 EM. But what that allows you to do is really just kind of manipulate font size across these different viewports. And a lot of the layout will actually scale up or scale down in proportion with that font size. In addition to those font-based units, we also have VW and VH, which are relative to the viewport, viewport width, viewport height. So if you want something to be 100% wide and 100% tall of the browser window that you're looking at your page in, you can set that and that will automatically scale depending on the device. So whether it's a landscape desktop computer or a portrait phone, it'll always be 100% size of that device. And then you also have some other interesting ones which are still kind of font-based, but can be really interesting when you start to look at typography from a design perspective. So probably my favorite is CH in that you can declare CH is essentially the width of the zero character in your given font. So each font, even though you might say a font size is 16 pixels, depending on the font that you're using, it could actually be a different pixel size. Fonts work kind of weird on the web that way. And so the CH font allows you to size things specifically to the font that you're using. And that's very helpful when you start to look at things like uh, making sure that your columns are an appropriate width. So instead of just thinking of a column as 600 pixels wide, you can actually set it almost to kind of 60 characters, which is going to scale a little bit differently and kind of work with your kind of design philosophies as you kind of need to think of them on this additional axis of like 
this needs to scale up and down on different screens. So how does this relate to a relative fix or absolute positioned element or does it? So positioning as it relates to actual like style rules can be related to units for sure. I think that they probably should be again, because a lot of those font based units are really around white space and making sure that an element isn't just going to show up kind of, you know, where you think that it should, but also in a way that is going to be kind of mathematically probable and that it's going to look correct to the eye. Positioning itself, actually, it more kind of has to do with when you want to accomplish kind of a layering effect or have certain elements on top of each other. So essentially what you're doing when you declare position relative, position absolute, etc., means that you're going to kind of break the standard document flow and instead arrange those elements according to whatever the last parent is that's declared position relative. So you see this a lot with, for example, like background images or like sections in like hero sections. So you have a background image applied on a parent and that parent is applied position relative. And then let's say you want two elements to kind of stack on top of each other, overlap a little bit. You can set both of those child elements to uh, position absolute and then arrange those based on any unit that you want. So it can be pixels again, which is what you would probably see more traditionally, but you could also see rem. You could also see viewport width and positioning according to viewport size is also something that's very important because once you, again, break that document model and you get into screen three sizing, not everything is necessarily going to look correct, especially as you change aspect ratios. I think that's kind of a a foundational thing about CSS that a lot of people kind of overlook as well is really thinking about aspect ratios and how something is going to look on a landscape device versus portrait. So yeah, I'd say that's kind of how you can think about approaching a position absolute use case and think about leveraging some of these more advanced units as well. Yeah, makes sense. Excellent. So now we're going to do a lightning round on some terms here because I want to make sure we get as many terms in as possible. So I'm going to throw some terms that the community wanted to know about regarding CSS and maybe you can give us a short summary. That work for you? Let's do it. So let's start with CSS selectors. You kind of mentioned them already, but just go ahead and give us a summary of that. Yep. So selectors are basically how you're going to identify what element you want to apply rules to using your CSS. They're essentially the same as if you're using document.query selector, meaning that you can use class selectors, ID selectors, etc. It's how you're going to identify what element you actually want to manipulate. Great. And to that effect, what are class selectors and ID selectors and how are they different? So the main thing to think about here Ideally, best practice in CSS, you don't want to use an ID selector. IDs you really want to use primarily in JavaScript because, again, those are going to be, and this is the major difference, IDs are specific to an element, kind of similar to uh, when we talked about inline styles. IDs should not be duplicated in a single HTML doc. Class selectors, on the other hand, can be shared. For example, if you think about like a card layout, you can apply a card class to 20, 30, 40 elements on your page, and all of those are going to share those styles. Tell us about CSS properties. The CSS properties are going to be all the rules that you apply to a certain element in your CSS. So going back to the card example, dot card might have a border radius of 4 EM, and might have a margin bottom of 3.2 EM or similar whatever the actual rules are. So anything from margin, padding, background, any of those kind of properties, those are what's going to be applied to each individual element. And going back to selectors, what are contextual selectors? So contextual selectors are essentially ways for you to write rules and select elements without using a class or an ID. 
So this kind of takes into account kind of more logical parent-child relationships is how you usually see it. So you have ways to select, for example, every element within a certain parent class. So you can find your parent class and then do a carrot and then a star designating like every element that is a direct child of this parent should get this rule. And there's a few different ones like that to look into and definitely more of an advanced tool, but one that does allow us a lot of flexibility. Very cool. What about CSS sprites? CSS sprites are also called image sprites. And essentially what that does, it's another optimization tool where essentially what you're doing is you're loading multiple images all in one and then manipulating that with background image for uh, or background position, for example. So Let's say that you have a whole bunch of icons before Font Awesome and a couple of these other like font libraries. What you would do is you would load in a big image file with each one of these icons, essentially its own little square. And then you would use CSS to essentially crop out just the individual part of the image that you want to show. And the advantage to that is that you're now loading in one image and getting essentially 20 images back with a single request. Right. And that minimizes the request to the server. Correct. Right. What are pseudo elements? Pseudo elements are something I use a lot and they really help with adding kind of design accent. So pseudo elements are essentially things that you can declare in CSS that will add an additional quote unquote like ghost element relative to the selector that you've declared. So You'll see this a lot. Let's say that your brand uses like decorative, like really thick bottom borders for a header. So instead of just declaring a border bottom, because a header is going to be a full width element by default, meaning like, let's say you have a really short headline, but the header itself is in a wider space, that border bottom is going to stretch all the way across the screen. What you can do instead is again, leveraging those position properties that we talked about earlier apply a position relative to that header and then add a pseudo element. So saying, declaring a new rule with the same selector and then a colon after or colon before will insert essentially a blank element at that selector. So you could then insert a pseudo element with a width of 100%. So it'll be as wide as the header, position it absolute. So you have control over exactly where that element's going to render compared to the parent, and then apply your colors and your width and your height, etc., to make it match up your design, and it will automatically resize and, and reposition itself based on that parent. What are mixins? Mixins are similar to uh, the CSS variables that we talked about earlier in that they don't have 100% browser support. However, if you're using a preprocessor or some kind of build tool, you can definitely use them. But they're essentially ways for you to write rule subsets that can be then shared across classes. So let's say that you have two classes that are very similar but just different enough that they can't just be kind of a, a modifier class or something like that. Or you want to be able to manage this kind of block of styles across multiple classes or other rules in a central location. So you update at one place and it updates throughout all the different classes where it's being used. You can use a mix-in for that. It's essentially a block within your, your actual rule block. What are vendor prefixes? Vendor prefixes, we talked about a little bit earlier. It's essentially all the rules or all of the styles that each browser handles just a little bit differently. So things like uh, transition is probably one of the most popular ones where you need to have a dash webkit, dash moz, etc. declaration for a lot of those kind of rules. And what that does, it allows the browser to handle each one of those rules in its own way. And hopefully, at the end of the day, create a, a smoother or more consistent render. So being more compatible across the board. Mm -hmm. One final question. Should a developer opt in for using CSS animation or JS animation? I think it depends on the use case. So I believe we talked about this a little bit earlier, where for certain like really 
high-end experiences where you're dealing with 3D or some very interactive kind of animations, then you probably will want to use JavaScript at least to, to power some of them. However, for very simple ones, especially things like whenever I see in a React component, like toggling styles based on hover using using JavaScript, I always think that it's going to be more performant to just declare that in CSS. So that's something we haven't talked about yet, but you can also declare certain states of elements. So things like hover, focus, visited, all of these are different states that you can then apply a CSS transition to. And again, that's 99% of the time going to result in a very high frames per second a transition. Whereas in JavaScript, sometimes depending on how you go about it, it could be a, a less smooth experience. So you can definitely create very good animations with JavaScript. But I think because CSS is a little bit more opinionated in that regard, in terms of transitions and animations, if it's something simple, or especially something that's going to be reusable, I think CSS is usually the way to go. Now you spoke about optimizing CSS before you gave some tips, but to end this episode, what's the one tip that if there's any Anything you do, this is what you should do to help optimize performance of your CSS. That's a big topic. If I was to come up with one rule, it is really that concept of designing mobile first and writing your CSS mobile first. I think that makes a really big difference. Maybe not in Google PageSpeed or Lighthouse so much, but it really makes a difference for user experience. Loading in the necessary critical styles early in the document for a small device, it can make all the difference in the world if you're on a, a very slow cell connection. I've actually spent a lot of weekends this summer at my grandparents' cabin. And up there, they do not have a cabled internet connection. So their only option is using a Verizon hotspot. Or, you know, obviously, or honestly, usually my cell phone's a little bit faster. So being on a connection like that, it really makes you realize just how many websites there are out in the wild that are mainly developing their CSS, developing their user experience at the end of the day for desktop users. And performance and keeping the web lean is something that I'm very passionate about. It's something that really attracts me to a lot of the Jamstack technologies that are coming out now and headless services like Contentful and like a lot of these other headless CMSs or microservices. Keeping the web lightweight and agile is something that I think is going to be necessary, really, especially looking at what COVID has done recently, just really being able to bring the web to everyone, especially in those rural areas, those areas that aren't accessible by a lot of these bigger ISPs. Getting your messaging out there for a business, making sure that your website is optimized for those kind of connections can make a huge difference. It can be the difference between a big deal and, and missing out. So definitely, I think designing mobile first, designing for those slower connections, because at the end of the day, no one loses in that situation. A desktop is just going to run that much faster. So making sure your CSS is optimized and designing mobile first, I think is my one tip that I would give people to consider. Fantastic tip and a perfect tip to end this episode on. Mark, thank you so much for being on the podcast again and sharing all the wealth of information you shared today about CSS. I know I learned a lot and I think this is going to help a lot of people. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Happy to be here and happy to spread the word about CSS. You did amazing. Now, if people want to get a hold of you, do you want to give some sort of contact information? Yeah, absolutely. So I am on Twitter. I don't tweet too much, but I am at Mark Riba second. So that's at Mark M or M-A-R-K-R-Y-B-A, the number two N-D. And I'm also on LinkedIn. It's going to be linkedin.com slash Mark dash Riba, R-Y-B-A. 
And also check out smartbugmedia.com. That is the company that I work for. And we are actually also hiring a developer. So if you are interested in a remote development position, go ahead and head over there, check out our careers page. We'd love to see your application. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to put all that in the show notes. So Mark, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And to the rest of you, I'm glad you were here with us. Just a quick reminder to visit www.headlesscreator.com for more podcast episodes, tutorials, webinars, and blog articles. So until the next episode, I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin. Cheers, everyone. Oh, 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 oh